And that was the first time I've used my new Avery Brewing Company bottle opener, which has actually been on my keys for like two months. But never used it before because... Yeah, because I, I got two like sets of keys because I have my car key and my house key, uh, which is on like a one keychain, and then the rest of my various keys that I use sometimes on a different keychain... So that, uh, you know, I don't have, like, 80 million keys to sort through when I want to just, you know, start my car or something. So. So you don't just have it all on a big key ring. Yeah. And, of course, both of them have, you know, bottle openers on them. So that way, you know, whichever one I pick up is that. And But that one's usually on top because, you know, it's the one I use most because it's got my house and my car keys. Anyways, I should have probably opened my notes before we started. But welcome to Drink to the Past. Uh, apparently, last time I used my Chromebook, I was still watching Star Wars. Go me. Star Wars is great. The ninth one? I mean, all of them. Oh. The ninth one comes out next week, so I'm kind of catching up before that. You don't have Future Sight? Uh, don't have Oracular Vision? No, I, I learned Future Sight at 49th level. Currently, all I have is Psybeam and Protect. I didn't know you were a psychic Pokemon. I'm not. Oh. I'm a normal... Uh, and... Fighting. I guess. I don't know. What kind of Pokemon, like, drinks beer a lot? Normal and fighting? Yeah, probably. Probably. Like, like Drunken Fist or something. Yeah. Anyways, now I'll open my notes. And then we can remember what to say, because I always forget what to say. Anyway, since we have forgot what to say, I guess I have to drink. So today's Sean Drinks Something Stupid is an Irish coffee that my wife left some coffee on the coffee maker, and so I put some booze in it. So I mean, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, right? I mean, it's coffee. What's not to like? Yeah. Mm. And ain't bad coffee either. Uh, so yeah, I just had some Baileys and bourbon and coffee. The three B's of booze. Bees booze. Bailey's bourbon and coffee, the three B's. With no meat involved. Yep. But it's good. Anyway, um, so welcome to Drink to the Past, the only podcast where we babble for ten minutes before telling you what the fuck you're doing here. Or, uh, you know, even introducing who the fuck we are. Right, yeah. Who's that guy? Uh, oh, oh we just ignore him. Oh. He just stands in the corner and stares at us while we talk. Sometimes he masturbates. Yeah, I was, I was wondering whether or not to bring it up. I feel like this is the kind of dumb conversation we should save for the end. Yeah, <laughs> but we didn't, so we have to drink. Uh, today's beer of the week is from Founders Brewing Company. It's called KBS Flavored Stout, which is a bourbon barrel aged uh, coffee chocolate stout, and it's pretty fucking good. So, slanja or cheers. Or Kampai, or Nazdrovia, depending on which language you speak. Ooh, shit, that's intense. Ah, told you. That's why I'm splitting it with you, because, you know, you have to drive home, and I didn't figure you'd want a whole, you know, 14% beer or whatever this is. Yeah, something like that. Pretty high up there. It's over 10. I don't remember what it is. But, uh, yeah, now we got that. Uh, So, news and booze this week. Um... 
We were talking a little bit about uh, Black Friday sales last week, and then I went on right after we recorded the podcast and saw that Blasphemous pre-orders were still up on limited runs, so I'm getting me a physical run of Blasphemous. Nice. That's going to be badass. Going to play a pointy hat guy. Yes, I am. And I'm going to die a lot, and I'm going to kill a lot. Because I'm, like, not very good at Castlevania-style games. But, you know, should work out. It'll be fun anyways, I think. Um, other news and booze stuff. Uh, Super Mario Maker 2 added a new update. Uh, I think they announced the update. I don't think it's actually live yet. Uh, but I, I don't actually have Mario Maker 2. It's interesting to me, but I, I'd re- much rather, you know, watch what other people make on YouTube instead of making my own levels that would be not as good. Like, if they made a Zelda Maker, I would go out of my way to buy it and, like, make all sorts of cool badass stuff in that kind of thing. But, uh, not not for Mario. And I also feel like those Game Maker games, usually, it's like we get most of the that energy out, uh, like, writing tabletop stuff. <coughs> yeah. It's very, it's like a very similar gratification. Of, yeah. It's yeah. Like kind of work, part of the brain. Yeah. Hobby. Hmm. Yeah, so anyways, uh, but speaking of a Zelda maker, one of the things that is added, uh, they added some new enemies and a new Master Sword item, which you can put in any level in the game that you make, and then when Mario picks up the Master Sword, he turns into Link. But it's not like the first one where it's just like a Link costume and he works exactly the same. It's like legit, you're Link, and you have bombs and arrows and shit, and you can add those and work them into different puzzles throughout the level. Dang. Uh, so you, you're you actually Link as opposed to Mario wearing a Link skin. Yes. Wearing a skin so Link. Th- like this actually, it kind of piques my interest as a huge Zelda fan, but it's still like Mario levels. And like I feel like somebody is going to remake Zelda 2 and because you have bombs and arrows and they're actually, they look like pretty usable, it's going to actually be like better than Zelda 2. As opposed to, I hit you with my dick. <coughs> right. Look at me and my dick. It's tiny. I still like Zelda, too. Yes, you do. And you're wrong for it. But that's okay. That's a conversation for another time that I think we had on the podcast at least twice. Yeah, which game would we get rid of? Right. Yeah, that was it. Just kind of gurgling that coffee there. Yep. I guess. I don't know. I like making that sound, and especially on the podcast, because the listeners will be like, so is he awkwardly slurping his Irish coffee, or is he taking a bong hit? They'll never know. No, they won't. Although, if one of us starts to cough... (laughs) Now they'll never know. (laughs) Right. Anyways, um, oh yeah, and the Pegasus boots too. You get when you turn into Link, which so you can actually like run, which is pretty cool. Uh, Charge across caps. Yeah, and you can like use his down stab too. It actually looks pretty cool, and I kind of want to like get it just to play the levels that people are gonna make. But I don't want to spend sixty bucks to play those levels. The, the I way would rather watch them on YouTube for free than pay sixty bucks to watch. like if yeah. if the game gets a major price drop, then I would get it. But it's not going to because it's Nintendo, and they don't they don't they price don't drop. do discounts. Yeah, pretty much never. 
uh, unless the game has been out for a while, and then maybe they'll put it on sale occasionally. Like, there was a few actually pretty good Black Friday sales for, like, Breath of the Wild and Mario Odyssey, which have been out for, like, two years, two and a half years, depending uh, each. Um, and they were, like, down to 30 bucks for, like, you know, Black Friday kind of sales. <laughs> but that's it. You know, pretty much none of their other stuff ever takes much of a... Until it's like, okay, we are really just scraping the bottom of the barrel for sales. Okay, it's 20 bucks now. Instead of, like, you know, other games where it's like, within the first year of its launch, it'll see three price drops, and then it'll be like 20 bucks by the end of the first year. Yeah, and... Which... But Nintendo games continue to sell better than that after that period at the full price. So I'm like... It's like they're dedicated to making games as opposed to exploiting them. Maybe, yeah. So it's like one of those things that people debate endlessly that Nintendo should put their games on sale because every other company does it. But I don't think they should because they make a lot more money by not doing that and continuously selling their games because they just make games that are good that people will buy for years to come instead of people, you know, waiting to buy God of War until it's... They Ten bucks or do Horizon Zero Dawn or you know those kind of things. Business Not sense. Not those games are bad, but yeah, you know. they should do what makes business sense within a within like not being evil reason. Yeah. Which I don't know. Not price dropping your games isn't really all that evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and last news and booze topic. Uh, Nintendo Switch Online added an update, uh, which I'm not sure if it's live yet. Again, they announced this. I think it comes live later next week. Uh, they're adding six new games, three NES, I think, and three Super NES, or maybe four... Anyways, it's six new games, and the important one is Star Fox 2 is coming to Switch Online. So it is no longer going to be a exclusive game to the Super Nintendo Classic I feel like that's a game I'm required to pick up and play through all the way. Mm-hmm. Since, uh... Gonna subscribe to Switch Online just for Star Fox 2? Well, I subscribe to Switch Online to start playing Tetris 99. Right. You know, that works too. Because <laughs> I'm... A Tetris guy? Uh, not really. <laughs> just been having fun with it. Cool. Well, that's good. Um... Huh. Yeah. So... What do you think about it not being exclusive anymore? Do you think that kind of undermines the people that, you know, went out of their way to buy a $80 mini console? That no. I feel like a large amount of the draw for that console was there's an exclusive game that's literally never been released before. That's kind of a, you know, a lost part of gaming history. Yeah. Uh, no, mostly because I feel like Anytime anything is exclusive, we always should assume it's going to be exclusive for a limited time. Yeah. It's usually way more irritating to find out something was exclusive to one thing, and it just stays exclusive that way forever. Like, Nights Into Dreams for, like, 15 years. Right. Or, like, Doom 64 until next March. Yeah. Or... No, I'm just thinking of, like, a bunch of Dreamcast games. Or, not Dreamcast games, a mm-hmm. bunch of, uh, Sega Saturn games. Right. I never saw the jump. Speaking of which, we should get, like, a Switch port of Power Stone 2. Never played that. Huh. 
It was pretty good. It was like... It, it feels a lot like Super Smash Brothers, but 3D, which is kind of weird way to explain it. But it's like that same kind of platform jumping so like, while you're fighting kind of mechanic, and there's all sorts of wacky-ass items. Like, ta- kind of like Tails? The Tails games? Um... Yeah, but, like, more fully realized 3D instead of just side-scrolling 3D. Okay. Uh, where it, like, obviously in the Tales games, you know, you switch targets and you'll side-scroll in a different direction. But this is an actual, like, 3D uh, kind of, you, you know, you move in all 360-degree directions to kind of go through it. There's a whole bunch of good games that kind of get released and just weren't that popular mm-hmm. for whatever reason and then you never see them again yeah unless you play them on an emulator mm-hmm. now at that point it's just like preserving a piece of history mm-hmm. so what do you rate that beer now that news and booze is over we have to talk about the booze part it's kind of, of intense for me but i'm i'm kind of i'm kind of liking it i'd say 14 cool yeah i really I, like I this one I um i don't know let me give it another i don't think this will ever be mm. like just a sipping beer for me no, this isn't really the kind of thing that you can, you know, I, I find, you know, one bottle of this is pretty much good for like a whole night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's real thick. It's real heavy. Um, it's tasty as hell. Um, mm. definitely one of my favorite beers. Apparently there was something issue with the Founders Brewing Company, there was... Somebody was telling me there was, like, some sort of controversy with them, which is why I actually got this six-pack accidentally, because... Or... Yeah, I think it was a six-pack, because normally a six-pack of this is, like, 20 bucks, and they were on sale for, like, eight ninety nine or something at my grocery store, and I was like, holy crap. Huh. That's a great deal. What the hell's with that? And there was, like, a the- bunch of them. Do you know what the controversy was? I forget. Somebody told me, and then I immediately forgot because I was drinking this tasty, tasty beer. Hmm. Uh, so I'm gonna go with you. 14 on that. That's a that's a good fucking beer. Yeah. Uh, and Irish coffee is actually kind of hitting the spot right now too. Um, hmm. Hmm. It helps that also I was like kind of tired all day because I had work late last night, and then I. You know, I always work in the morning, but when work runs late at the night, and then I work in the morning again, it kind of gets to me sometimes. Uh, so coffee is really helpful right now. So I'm gonna Caffeine. give that. I'm gonna give that a 14 too. Yeah. Yeah. So a bunch of 14s all around. Yeah. Like all like decently above average. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It helps that it's actually pretty good coffee, which is kind of funny because it's like just the store brand coffee, but. The store brand King Super Coffee is actually, like, pretty good. Yeah. Weird, huh? Anywho, this week we are doing our table topic first. Bum, bum, bum. That's a reversal. Yeah. Changing the order, just to confuse everybody. Um, well, mostly because it, you know, it kind of leads into the video game topic for later a little bit more better than the video game topic would lead into this. Because uh, this is actually me calling you out. Oh, yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. Uh, so, our table topic today is uh, how to balance focus between mechanics and roleplay as a player character or a dungeon master. 
so this is a little bit to call you out of your campaign that we've been running recently. Uh, not in a bad way, necessarily. Okay. But uh, I, I have noticed, you know, we've had some sort of discussions about this before. Uh, but I thought it would be interesting to bring up on the podcast now that we have a, you know, session fresh-ish in our mind from last week of, you know, this system uh, that's, I feel like, you know, uh, it's obviously a higher mortality system than, like, 3.5. It's because uh, we're playing in your system. Yes. Uh, so you can describe that a little to the players so that or the listeners so that they know more about So that is about. Five Cataclysms Core Rules Beta Edition. Uh, you can pick that up as pay what you want. If you've Hashtag played... shameless plug. Yeah, shameless plug, which usually I say for the end, but I've been kind of skipping that. Uh, basically, if you've played OD&D or basic Dungeons and Dragons or AD&D, it's kind of it's very similar to those systems, but it's with a lot of uh, uh, alterations like uh, well, fighters not being totally useless later, or not being just another sword to throw at people mm-hmm. uh, which was kind of a big problem in od and Yeah. So anyways, um, basically in this campaign, the biggest difference I feel between this and our other campaigns is partially just because of the high mortality, uh, you have to kind of play differently, mm-hmm. uh, which involves a lot of peeking around corners and poking things with your 10-foot pull and, you know, being very wary of any innocuous ordinary object and things like that. And uh, I feel like, to an extent, it kind of takes away from the role-playing because uh, you have to kind of take yourself out of the character's shoes and literally just think with your own player knowledge rather than your player character knowledge of, okay, what kind of trap could be hidden here? What, you know, why, what is the purpose of this item here? That's actually really fair. That's, that's absolutely what that's kind of play style yeah. would be. Right, which I get that, so I'm not, like, mad about it. Yeah. But I, I think it's a very drastic shift from what I prefer about, you know, tabletop gaming in general is, mm-hmm. you know, my f- favorite part is the interplayer interaction and player-to-DM interaction. Oh, so... In character. Now I get to go over... I'm, I'm not sure if it's one of my favorite things to talk about, uh-huh. uh, but it's, I guess, what they called the new school versus old school divide in games. Mm-hmm. Which case, uh, we're, I guess we both came from new, new school and then I got dragged kicking and screaming into an old school game <laughs> and decided, hey, I actually really like how this plays. Right. Uh, so, I kind of have a perspective on both. Right. So, I... Uh, but with the old school plays, it's very much about as you were saying, thinking... As if you were the character taking the actions in-game to uh, play things out, to be a servant, to interact with stuff. Yeah. It was much more a test of the player than it was of the character. And then mm-hmm. uh, New School Gaming was more about the character, I would say. Yeah. Which is has its positives and negatives, like uh, more focus on... There's more focus. There's more 
of an expectation of like a little bit less lethality, I guess. Sin- and right, because I feel like you get a lot more attached to your characters now, and it's that was my biggest issue in the first place was that I came up with a relatively interesting character for the first time we ran a campaign like this, and mm-hmm. we went into a dungeon, and uh, you know combat started and my first instinct was to fight because we're in combat and in most cases at low levels that's a terrible fucking idea so i i don't remember if i died there or later on and then i like i died another time on a different character that was like vaguely interesting that i was just trying to do the right thing and uh i told this ghost that i'd marry her if she'd stop haunting the place or something along those lines and then I took her hand in marriage, and because I touched a ghost, I died. So, so, <laughs> and I'm like, come on, Sean, twice in a row. I'm like, kind of trying to get into these characters, and then they're off, you know, yeah. <laughs> the moment I'm finding some sort of development in them. So, it's a very, it, it's absolutely something that I feel like I've kind of failed at least in terms of communicating how different things are going to be Uh because we have it's like we have our way we play in this group that we're used to playing in this group right uh and then there's the whole don't get too attached to your character because they might well die early on or Mm -hmm. uh so i but i also think that um you can at least to some degree, separate the high lethality of that kind of play from all the other things that I really enjoy about it. Yeah, get a better game. Right, because it's it. it's it's got its other good things in there as well, obviously. Yeah. Um, but so, what do you think is an important way to kind of balance the role play and the mechanics in this system, particularly? Do you do a lot of role play within this system? At- Yes. At times, or is uh, it more what, specific times, or is it just if your character lives, then you can have some development? <laughs> basically, it's I've played, I've had the advantage of both r- running a game for sixty-two sessions of this with another group, and also playing mm-hmm. in an ongoing campaign. And it's once a character lives past a certain point, they kind of dev- take on a life mm-hmm. of their own, right? And to a certain degree, that's because they get more survivable. Like, mm-hmm. uh, but it's also all of the shit that happens with them. Mm-hmm. They uh, that you can kind of role play more because the first couple sessions are kind of like plotless dungeon diving, and then shit happens in the dungeon that leads to complications out in the game world and suddenly you're playing through a story where no one knows what's going to happen. Okay. So that would actually be kind of interesting, but I feel like uh, our group has not stuck with any of these so far for much longer than, like, two dungeons. Yeah, so... If that... That's... So that's probably a big flaw in it, is it is set up for, like, long-form games. Yeah, for, like, which is a thing that our group struggles with sometimes. Yeah. Because, like, we'll come back to campaigns after, you know, so long sometimes. But, you know, also all of our... A large amount of our players have two or three campaigns on the back burner that at any time we're ready to, you know, oh, hey, let's play Zombocalypse again. I want to be a pirate. You know, they like Zombocalypse. Yeah, we haven't played that in a long-ass time. We have not played that in a long-ass time. Yeah. But not to... 
not to distract. Uh, I part of this part of this group is um, we tend to play much campaigns for a much shorter period of time. Right, and we tend to so it tends to be campaigns can run anywhere from like one session if a player if uh, the DM get is particularly distractible or the players are particularly distractible to uh, maybe a dozen or two dozen sessions yeah if we get particularly focused yeah and then the issue with that is not necessarily that we want to drop the campaign but just that oh the DM wants to play that week or you know somebody else is like oh hey I've got a new campaign or you know I want to you know somebody's real gung-ho about something they're doing in their campaign you know so eventually we always intend to come back to these but also eventually there's a lot on the back burner because I think I have like five campaigns that technically we're still quote unquote playing and yeah (laughs) and the temptation one of them has been reset twice or or actually two of them I think have been reset at least yeah there's because pirates I've reset tuple A and and, and, yeah quadruple A quadruple A and pirates and uh have we reset any of your other campaigns I don't think we've reset any of the other ones but basically the temptation as someone who runs games is to start is just as your life goes on you get distracted and you look at other things and you say oh i really want to do this now right yeah so that's that's sort of how ragnarok came about was because i was uh i i had just had this random ass idea that i wanted to have the player characters down below dealing with fire raining from the sky from two gods battling above them and just have to deal with that in some way or another and so i just made a campaign with this you know fairly fleshed out pantheon and let the players loose in the world and i it was funny because i started like a uh this whole thing with a cult that was going to incite ragnarok and then accidentally the players incited it instead. <laughs> so either way, I got my wish. And then later on, I, I made that scene happen with, uh, you know, the goddess of ice and the god of fire. We're all fighting and the fire and ice are raining from the sky. And, you know, it's killing people left and right in the town below because, you know, gods are fighting. So I got to live out that scene that I initially came up with. That's always, and so then, a fun thing. Inexplicably, like two sessions after that, I like I still have probably two or three sessions prepared, ready to go for about how long we play. I think, but uh, then like I think we got distracted by Dan's fifth edition campaign, and then Alma Carrig once or twice, and something else in the middle I don't remember and then and now we did your campaign last week so again it's like not that we've abandoned Ragnarok but just we've been distracted because so we have too many fucking DMs why well, hey, if you but we get a lot of more diversity in our gameplay I feel like than the average group with one DM that meets and plays in the same campaign world every week i'm reasonably certain that pretty much every member of our group has taken to dming at least once except for tyler i don't know if tyler has ever dm'd anything yeah he might have 
because he's been playing like so fucking long, but I really have no idea if he has. But yeah. I know for a fact that everybody has, else in our group has at least dipped their toe. I, I haven't talked to Troy about it. I wonder if Troy DMs at all. Anyway. I mean, that's... Probably. Probably. At some point, he's... I, I would imagine. Me. But, I'm again, I'm not totally sure. No, yeah, he does. He mentioned oh, does he? It. Yeah, he okay. mentioned it last session. Okay. Yeah. But, uh... So, as a DM, do you kind of try and steer players toward roleplay and away from mechanics at points, or vice versa? So, I think that depends on how you define roleplay. If you define roleplay as, like, um, like acting out as your character would, <laughs> I would say I don't try to steer them towards it or away from it. I just... I feel players like to engage with... at as, like, playing, acting out this character role um, at different levels of comfort. Like, you're probably... You and a few other of my players are way more comfortable with it than uh, some other people that we can think of. Right. Uh, Who's... I'm not going to name names in either case. Right. Uh, Yeah, because that is one thing that I'm, you know... I, I... I've played with players that are a little awkward about, you know, when they get into any kind of very deep role play. It's like, you know, here's some morally challenging question and you have to respond as your character would respond. And they, you know, it it takes them back for a minute and they have to really think about it. And they still are like slightly hesitant in their answer. And yeah, it's just unsure of, you know, almost how to go about it. For some people, they, like, I'm, I'm going to say you, they really enjoy, like, the acting aspect of the role-playing, but some yeah. people, it just makes them really uncomfortable. So I don't I don't push it one way or the other. Okay. Uh, but sense. in terms of, like, thinking about the situation that their character is in as mm. if they were in that situation, I really do want to encourage that, which is why I like the kind of... Um, thing where I describe what's going on in, say, a room, and rather than leave it up to dice rolls, I say most of the dice rolls you would use to interact with this room don't exist. You have to tell me what you're doing, or say I'm going to investigate this thing further. Which is something we've vaguely talked about before, that I use that to scoop my way past dice rolls occasionally with different DMs, because it's like, oh, I'm going to... Uh, investigate the desk in the corner and open up the drawer, look through the diary on the uh, table, or stuff like that. And it's like, okay, then, you know, when you don't specifically say, I'm going to make a search check at the desk over there, you know, you're like, they don't always immediately think of it. And if it's like something weird or obscure, then they'll, they'll bring it up. They'll make you roll. It's fine. Yeah. That's what the rolls are there for. But at the same time, I feel like. Uh, investigation in that sort of thing through roleplay is more interesting than just being like, I have a plus 95 to my skill. I roll a 2. Do I find the cheese? Yeah. And sometimes it's fun to have like, oh, I have this totally broken build and then I roll the 1 and I get a 101. Do I get the thing? And that, But that's a really a different kind of fun than... Uh, and it definitely appeals to, I think, a narrower audience right. than just interacting with the thing. 
<laughs> um, so as a player character, do you prefer to look at things mechanically or through the eyes of your character? Uh, I prefer to look at them... I definitely prefer to look at them through the eyes of my character unless I put a lot of effort into mechanically optimizing the character. Right. Like we have for some of those 3.5 campaigns. <laughs> and even then I try to engage I try to engage with the situation as as if it was a real situation, not as if it was a series of uh numbers to be overcome. Right. Cuz that I feel like is kind of an issue that can come up when you're just so focused on the system that you forget that it you forget what the RP stands for yeah. in RPG, you know. Uh I feel like both should be taken at least equally. I'm like, the rolling dice is fun for mm. players. Yeah. J- just the simple act of rolling the dice, but we gotta remember that rolling the dice is meant to supplement the role-playing. It's not meant to... It It's not meant to be the focus of the role-playing. Right. Yeah. And I think that maybe is something that also gets into players' heads, because it, it is fun to roll the dice. Yeah. That, that's a good way to put it, you know, because no matter what you roll, something interesting is probably maybe going to ha- or, you know, come out of it. And you, you immediately know sometimes if you've beat the roll, and you immediately know sometimes if you didn't make the roll, and that can be equally hilarious. And sometimes you hit that middle ground, and it, like, builds this suspense when you're like, ooh, I get a... Uh, I rolled a 10. Is that enough? I don't know. I've got lots of skill ranks, Actually, but I don't know. It's funny that you say that, because I was going to say one sign of a, of a good DM is that every time a, that DM asks you to roll, mm-hmm. it's going to have something important. It's going to represent something important. Mm-hmm. It's not going to ever be, oh, I roll a search check, uh, roll a perception check just constantly. Right. Uh, and there's not much of a penalty for failure. Oh, roll a climb check. Oh, you fall five feet. Right. Yeah, I feel like also just instituting skill checks in unnecessary locations is like... Why? It's Like, sometimes it's, skill checks are fine, but I feel like they can be overly used in case... I don't know. It's usually it's like, a sign of inexperience, I think. Yeah. It's... Uh, it's you know that this is how the game works. You read right. through the book, but you don't. Have I to like roll. to put them in occasionally as like options, because uh, you know my campaigns generally don't have borders, so it's like okay, campaigns you can go without borders, right? Because <laughs> like you can go this way and it'll be much easier, or you can be this way and you'll have to do some skill checks or something. Uh, like uh, Zombocalypse is a good um, example of that because I made this rock slide over the uh, road where you guys were driving one time, and it was like, okay, you can either... You can't clear the rock slide. There's just far too many rocks, and it would take, like, months. So, no, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm not just going to time skip forward for four months. That'd be stupid, you know. So it's like, okay, you can abandon your car, or you can try and ford the river in your car... And then go through this railway tunnel that's old and abandoned. And I think we chose the ford the river and go through the railway tunnel 
You did. And fight the fucking zombies. Yeah, well, that, that ended up being, like, there was, like, a bunch of uh, bandits on handcarts. <laughs> and I think one of them, like, jumped onto the back of your Jeep and you shot him in the face or something. I feel like there was something funny with you in the back of a Jeep. It's usually a fun place to be. <laughs> right. Uh, except for Josh, who forgot to wear his seatbelt. There aren't enough car crashes in kids. RPGs. Right? In, like, yeah. modern-day RPGs. Yeah. Which, surprisingly, they come up, like, regularly in Zombocalypse. Yeah. Mmm, <laughs> coffee. So, uh... Do you have any particular thoughts to add on to the that table topic? Um... I don't know, because it, it is kind of an interesting, you know, sort of a thing. Because I try to push a fair amount of roleplay, but... I also feel like I get caught up sometimes in, you know, what everything is doing mechanically as well, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but sometimes I feel like I get steered one way or the other by the group. Uh, you know, especially when you have certain players that are, like, more focused to go one direction on this spectrum than the other. You know, you have one of your more mechanically focused people, he'll be like, okay, what is the objective? What is the easiest way to get there? Uh, you know, your guy who's like, scry and teleport every five seconds kind of person. Uh, yeah. And then on the other end of that, you sometimes have people who are just like, I'm here for the story, and we don't necessarily have to get to the objective with any immediacy, so what's in the world around us? You know, and uh, I, I think it's kind of interesting to work with both sides of those players for different reasons and then sometimes when they uh kind of want to do different things uh i I think it's kind of weird though because sometimes it's like you know i've had times when literally players were like immediately going for the mcguffin or whatever and other players were like oh but we wanted to take the scenic route <laughs> so uh what kind of thing do you do in that case have you ever had something like that where some players were just like go 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 and others were like no let's investigate you know the rest of this around here or solve this side quest or something like that uh sometimes i can run that as if the party was getting split and then i just make sure i'm shifting focus between the two groups often enough that none of the players get bored or that whatever's happening with either of the groups is interesting enough that even the people who aren't uh, playing mm-hmm. uh, at in the other group are engaged in some way. Right. Like, it also helps to have, like, lots of NPC ads that aren't really... They're, they're not there to be, like, DMPCs, mm-hmm. which is a stupid thing anyway. Uh, they're there to be like oh these characters your your player characters are over here do you want to control this NPC while these guys are going in this other direction right so that you know they have something to do mm-hmm it's an interesting idea so it usually it's pretty easy to I don't. I usually don't have diversions where they just go in totally different directions for a long time, right? Because the play, because usually my players are like, okay, we want to actually 
not spend half of our time just sitting on our thumbs. Right, yeah. Get back together so we can actually accomplish something. Yeah. You know. Because that's an interesting thing, I too. Because, like, I feel like a lot of times when you get... When I've got into this situation, uh, it's been like, okay, one player, you know, is gung-ho about going to the MacGuffin. And as a DM, I don't, like tell the party necessarily that they're splitting up i you know i i feel like i always assume that the party is just staying together so i say do you guys follow him or something and i feel like most of the time a party is like okay but if you don't necessarily give them that option that could be an interesting kind of a clever trick around that to where every player could do really what they wanted to do instead of because also as a player i feel like if the dm says do you all follow this guy into the next room or wherever he's going, you know, most of the time you're just like, oh, there's a plot hook probably or something. That's what the DM is trying to tell us. Well, usually when I ask... That's what I pick up from that sort of question anyway. Usually when I ask the question, who else is in the room, everyone's like, oh, no, I was standing outside the door. But uh, it's a yeah. different game that's yeah. the, the danger present, I guess. Right, yeah. And there's something about that too where it's like also... You know, you got to kind of pay attention to what everybody's doing, you know, because you describe the room usually to the first person who walks in technically. Mm -hmm. And then it's not always necessarily that person who is the first to say, I'm going to interact with something in the room. So then you have to kind of keep track of that also of like, okay, who's actually in the room? Who said that they went in the room? Did they specifically say that they were staying out of the room? You know, stuff and like that. So, As I've gotten more experience, I've usually found it's easier just to ask people all the time what they're doing, even if nothing special happens. Just to be like, mm -hmm. okay, where are you guys in this room? And watch them panic a little and then kind of get used to it being just a normal question. Right. So when something bad, bad does happen, I can trust that they're honest about their location. Right. Okay. Or when something good happens, that they're honest about their location. Yeah. So that's a kind of an interesting uh, way to go about it. Um, I think that might even work better with a map. Uh, if you were, like, literally just mapping it out the entire way uh, with minis or dice to represent players or something like that. Uh, and then even if you're not in combat, you know, you don't have to be a dick about, oh, you only have a 20-foot movement because you got your heavy armor, you know. No, just be like, okay, we're out of combat, so your turn, quote-unquote, could be like, uh, you know, going in and making a full-minute investigation check or, or whatever it was in you. Yeah. Uh, and then the next guy would get a similar nondescript chunk of time to do something in. You know, it wouldn't be specifically, ooh, this is this six seconds, and you can move this far. And, then, you know, I, I think that would be actually a probably a okay way to do that, do you think? Uh, where it's like, so that way you kind of would keep track of them. Uh, it, I think it would be situational, obviously. Yeah. But I it, think I think in, in certain situations that would be really helpful, it, particularly in this sort of a setting. If I'm like, uh, setting. there's... You're in a hundred foot hallway, and then the doors that lead into the hallway all slam shut and lock, and then a giant fan blade starts spinning up the hallway. Then you want to do that round by round. Say, okay, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, obviously, like, if there's a scene or a uh, combat or something, then you would go 
to a round by round setting but you know for various dungeon exploration like that i think that's actually not a bad way to do it just like keep initiative from the last uh encounter maybe even if you're gonna do that or just like go around the table or something yeah and depending on how your group does how your game system does initiative i guess right yeah because that would obviously factor in you know uh i and i don't know if this is on topic but i still really like group initiative as opposed to individual initiative Mm -hmm. just because everyone gets to do gets to act at once no one's sitting around waiting for their turn yeah um i think there's advantages to each because it rewards characters for building into that in certain cases uh but at the same time it's also like once you get to 20th level it's like okay the rogue goes first we fucking get it (laughs) you know and i'm the barbarian so i have like a I only have a plus 95 to dexterity, so I go last. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, all the magical buffs and shit. It's like, you know, you go before literally every 19th level player character, but not the rogue. <laughs> you're just not You're just not fast enough. Right. He, <laughs> he, he put more... He, he's got both of the initiative enchantments on his mm-hmm. weapon. Uh, yeah. But also with group initiative, I, I do actually kind of like it uh, in certain cases, especially with... You know, it. I feel like it speeds up combat a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, and it kind of streamlines it a little bit, because you, you it's kind of like when you're playing a 2v2 game of Magic, where, like, if you're playing each turn individually, then first of all, you know, people get confused whose turn it is more, uh, instead of everybody just kind of being like, you know, everybody on a on the team being like, I do this, I do this, I'm going to play this land, I'm going to play this map, you know, yeah. whatever, to kind of take it at the same time uh, to get it out there. And obviously it's it's not appropriate for every system, but yeah, yeah, I like it for the reasons right. you just mentioned and also the fact that no, you never go get to someone and you say, okay, it's your turn. I'm like, okay, what's going on? What What's happening? Yeah, because they've it, all been listening to this because it's been everybody's turn. Yeah. So that that's also a good. I I also kind of like the initiative style in um, Hero System, where it's like depending on how high your dexterity is, you get to move on multiple actions in a round. Uh, but obviously, there's also issues with that occasionally, particularly in Hero System, because it's like, okay, I am the boss, so I go on every one of the twelve initiatives, and the player characters go like twice yeah twice or the slow guy goes once and so i'm just gonna roll all over him you know it depending on your build you can be retardedly broken by just maxing out speed and then if you've got like one thing that does okay damage you can just spam it for the entire round because you go every fucking round like getting like putting but all your I, points I like into killing things with swords right <laughs> i i Is like the idea I, I like the idea of it also i think it's the sort of thing that ends up working out better if you had a computer tracking it uh-huh it, it's one of those things it it's one of those fiddly bits that's 
fun to think about, but is kind of a pain in the ass right. to keep track of. I think it actually uh, an interesting since you mentioned a computer keeping track of it. I, it kind of reminds me of the initiative system in Octopath Traveler, uh, where all of your player characters get one turn every round. Uh, and most enemies do as well, but boss characters will sometimes move, like, two or four turns in a round. Um, but you can stun them to take away those turns. Anyways, that's a whole different mechanic. But the thing about it is, uh, you... The initiative is randomized every turn. So even though the boss might have four turns in a round, he might have them interspersed throughout the turn, or he might have them all at the end, or something. Uh, so maybe that would actually be an interesting way to balance it in a tabletop system to maximize the effect of what the hero system was going for. Yeah. I, what you could do is you could just say, all right, everyone roll, like, I don't know, a D, uh, D10, and then tick down your D10 by however much the lowest number is, and then... Once you get to number one, you're able to act, and everyone who's on number one at that time acts simultaneously, and then you re-roll it. Mm. But that also sounds like a giant pain in the ass to it play does. with. I think it would be more simple if like, the DM took everybody's initiative and figured out how many times they're supposed to act in a round, and then ordered them randomly somehow, either by, you know, just like even like a d20 roll for every initiative like the boss has four initiative rolls so he gets four d20 he rolls like one three five and 19 so he goes on those numbers uh as it ticks down more or something like that or actually it was a 12 round so i guess you could use a d12 uh and then you say oh i'm on segment yeah so then a so player then, can just say, I'm like, I'm a player and I have speed four, so I get four rounds. I just roll four D12s and then arrange them left to right. And then when it's my act, the DM counts across from one to 12. I'm like, oh, I have two. I'm just going to take this D12 aside and take my action here. Right. Oh, I Something rolled a like seven. That. Yeah, okay. That's actually, would if everyone has all the dice they need in front yeah. of them like that that actually would work out and for simplicity i guess you could even just break it into a d6 uh because everybody has d6s yeah uh yeah and actually most things in hero system work off of d6 anyway the only the only reason i might suggest not using the only two reasons i would suggest not using d6 is because d6 you have would have a lot of overlap true between when people act right and also d12s don't get enough love that's true d12s are like the least loved dice even right though yeah because they they're cool shape yeah they're they're pretty much there just for your great axe yeah but until you like get enlarged person or something or a feat that allows you to hold a bigger one and then you're like nope monkey now it's too arm. <laughs> yeah uh let's see Cool. Um, so is there anything else you want to say about how to balance uh, focus between mechanics and roleplay? Uh, I have something to say about the use of mechanics in favor of roleplaying, which is... Also good. 
uh, a lot of the time, mechanics can be there to help the DM remain impartial, or at least as impartial as a human being can be. Right. If the rules say a thing resolves this way, then you get to just point at the rules and say, look, that's how it says it resolves, and then things kind of feel more real that way. Uh Uh-huh. But, so, and that's not to say that everything needs a rule, because that's... That's um, the problem with Hero System. That, yeah. Because everything has a rule. Everything has a rule. And, <laughs> and it's impossible is, to memorize all of them. Yeah. I mean, it's possible, but, like, I'm not, who has the time and I'm patience? I'm going to do it. Right? Yeah. Uh, Speaking of which, we should finish our system one of these days. We should finish our system. Yeah. It's, it's, like, mostly pretty good there. Yeah. But, it, you know, it's probably got to have some fine-tuning. We, we should playtest it more, I think. Maybe we'll do a session on here. Uh, next time we get a guest, let's play a session. I'll play Mr. Satellite again. Yeah. Is that who you were in Super Mobsters? Yes. That was another campaign that we left by the wayside because we got distracted by other campaigns. Because we were actually playtesting this whole system, and we ran two or three sessions, I think. And that was about it, and I think... Uh, you said you were gonna uh, DM the next session because uh, like I liked DMing the sessions but I kind of wanted another perspective on the game from the game master aspect and then to you know maybe even to also to give my impression on the player aspect uh, so I thought that would be helpful and I think we agreed on that and then you forgot to ever make the damn session no I made the session just no one just never ran it to- just you got I it said, still okay, I your... think I have, I can run this this way, and then we right. just never played it. You got it ready still somewhere? Yeah, still somewhere. Okay, so, yeah. Maybe next time you'll run a session for us for if we get a guest on here. Yeah. That'd be good. We'll get Peyton or my brother back or something, because they both seemed interested in coming back at some point, and I think that'd be fun. Yeah. Get a session of that in. Cool. Um, so, anyways, is that enough on that? Should we move on to video games? I think if we don't move off of it now, we'll never get to video games. Yeah, so more or less in the same vein, uh, can video games lose out when they focus too much on one aspect, whether that's graphics, story, mechanics, or otherwise? And I'm going to say yes, but with a giant pulsing asterisk at the Mm -hmm. end, where it's... Most of the time, games benefit from, say, a focused design. Right. Like, really knowing what they're about. Mm -hmm. But lots of games uh, tend to lack some resources that would allow them to be just, like, that much more playable or that much better in some way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that usually has to do with um, just not having the manpower necessary to add something to that game. Mm-hmm. Like bug testing or yeah, graphical fidelity or whatever. Yeah, that's kind of fair. Um, I feel like it's sort of a little bit of a case-by-case basis because in a lot of cases I feel like oh, they focus too much on graphics and so the gameplay is clunky, something like that. You know, that was a big issue with Fable 2. Uh, was just really clunky in the gameplay, but it looked amazing, right? Uh, 
at the time. Those Xbox 360 graphics. Yeah. yeah. Um, or uh, Deadly Premonition, which uh, was a very interesting game, but maybe did not have enough manpower on the technical side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To a certain degree, I feel like that's just lack of resources. Right. Could be. It's like they just ran out of something. Hmm. But also, on the flip side of that, I think in certain cases, a focus on one aspect over all others can also lead to some of the greatest games of all time. Um, I think an example of this is uh, Zelda Breath of the Wild, where I feel like 99% of the game design was all based around figuring out how to make gameplay work and how to make the physics engine work. And everything else, I think, sort of took a little bit of a backseat. And I think that was fine. Because uh, it all went into enhancing the overall gameplay experience. Like, the story, uh, I feel like a lot of people give it kind of criticisms for being, you know, too sporadic. Uh, you know, not... A lot of people don't like the way it's told. Uh, I love the way it's told. Because it's told through the gameplay. You know, I, yeah. you're you're finding I, each of these little pieces of memory from where you were in the past before Link, you know, got his amnesia and everything. You're and, not going to hear any disagreement here. Right, you're, and you're piecing together this whole story. Uh, and I think that goes a long way to presenting the story through gameplay. And even though it is, it's a simple story, you know. Uh, it's not groundbreaking but the way it was told i think personally is better than any other open world story has ever been told you know people compare it to skyrim endlessly because that's like everybody's like got a hard on for skyrim which isn't about bad thing. It's, mean, a, it's a good game Sky, yeah skyrim's not a bad game but skyrim does not i feel like it's maybe a little Undeserving of how much praise it gets, its flaws become only become more apparent with time. Like everyone sharing the same five voice actors, right? Or, you know, three of which took an arrow to the knee. No one being worth emotionally engaging. No, no character being worth emotionally engaging with, like except right. for Parthenax. And then the worst boss, final boss of all time. Yeah. They they gave you three assists and you didn't need any of them. Right? You're just like, sit, boy. I'm going to chop your head off. It was like a ride at Disney World. Like, I think I did it like I did back in Morrowind, where I was just like, I chug a bunch of booze, now I'm strong as fuck, and I three-shot him or something. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't quite as busted as Morrowind, where you could literally just buy Sujamas at almost every store. Oh, I didn't buff up at all. I just ran up and whacked him with my two-handed sword for... Right. I didn't buff up much, but I feel like died. I feel like you didn't find nearly as much buff stuff. But I I drank a bunch of buff stuff because I was like, it's the final boss. It's, it's gonna be so hard. And then I'm like, sit boy. And then I chopped his head off. And like, it, it was literally one uh, dragon shout to I forget what the dragon shout was called, but dragon run because I, I always called it sit boy because it just makes them land so that I can fucking hit him because I was a sword guy. I needed him to land so I could hit him. Yep. And the first few times I fought a dragon, it was still kind of hard because I'd have to, you know, dodge his fire breath and claws and heal up sometimes. But 
by that point in the game, it was just like I'd killed so many dragons. It was like, who even fucking cares? He's not. It's not even that different. Like Calamity fight. Ganon was not a great final boss, but it was a million times better than uh, Alduin. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I was like, which dragon was it? He's. It's it's pretty pathetic because he fights at you exactly like another like any other dragon. Yeah. Just slightly tougher. Right. But they also Not give you three noticeably tougher NPCs. Though. Right, yeah. He's all being pegged full of arrows the entire time. <laughs> you don't you don't need them. <laughs> the fight would have been so much better if it had been just right. you versus him. But yeah. Him. Uh my my issue with Skyrim other than that though is like I liked the story. It was it was a pretty good story. I was fine with it. Yeah. But the way it was told was the same as every other game before it. You go to point A, a guy tells you to go to point B. You go to point B, a guy tells you to gather a thing and go to point B again. You do that and then you go to point C and it's like, okay, I'm I'm doing the same thing I have in every other game. It's it's linear, which in an open world game defeats the purpose, I think. And then also, like, it becomes tedious to walk from place to place, and so you just rely on fast traveling. So it's like, after you've explored any given place, you can fast travel there, so why would you ever walk again to that place? Like, you need to go back there for some reason? Just teleport. Who cares? You know, in Breath of the Wild, it was fun to walk between places because you could take a totally different route. You would find random different treasures. You would find random different goblin camps. Yeah, Yeah. it was was an adventure to go between. I very, very seldom used the teleport mechanic, the fast travel mechanic in Breath of the Wild. Occasionally I'd use it if I specifically wanted to, like, go to a goddess statue and turn in my uh, things for a heart container. But that was pretty much it. Uh, And then, like, late game when I'm, like just trying to find all the last shrines. I'm like, okay, where in the map has a good place to fill in that doesn't have a lot of shrines that I should start looking in. Uh, And then once they put in that hero's path mode, that was kind of helpful because it's like, okay, where have I walked? Uh, Not here. I'm going to go there. Maybe I'll find a Korok or another shrine or something. I'd say it didn't help me that much, mostly because i just play through it and I'd hear death screams falling off the same cliff over and over. (laughs) Right. But, yeah, uh, Breath of the Wild's story design is much... Uh, the way the story is told is much better for the type of game it is than right. Skyrim's. Right. I don't think it's necessarily a better story than Skyrim's, but I think it's better told in the form of an open-world game. And so that focus on gameplay, I think, goes a long way to making Breath of the Wild uh, my second favorite Zelda game of all time. Well, I mean... I think it is a better story because it is better told. I also think it's a better story, but I uh, yeah, I could accept the argument that it wasn't. Is my point. I I think how a story is told can sometimes be as important as the contents right. of it. Also, I really just liked kind of the chemistry between Link and Zelda even though Link never talked. And yeah. then a lot of the like kind of hidden information that you would also find again because the story wasn't just in the cutscenes, and I think that's something that people failed to grasp a lot, that you would find so much more story outside of the cutscenes than you would inside them. Like burned down towns and wrecked houses and shit? Yeah, you find those kind of things. Or like uh, in Z- the area around Zora's Domain, there's a bunch of tablets 
that detail the adventures of King Zora beforehand, which uh, has a lot to do with Link and Mipha before uh, the Calamity. Um, but all of them are, like, worn away by the ages, so you kind of have to, like... Piece it do, together. Piece it together, yeah, because it's, like, missing halves of words here and there. Uh, so it's kind of interesting. And then each of the champions has a diary that you can read. Uh, Zelda has a diary that you can read about, you know, what was going up on for the champions. It's, like, right before they died. And for Zelda, obviously, it's just right before the Calamity happened, because then she couldn't come back to write her diary, because she was fighting Ganon for a hundred fucking years. And it also comes off better than a lot of those audio log storytellings in a lot of other games, where it's just kind of one note. Yeah. It, that's kind of how I felt a little bit. I've been replaying Doom 3 uh, and, uh, in, and the expansion, obviously, and uh, in there, there's like these audio log kind of files that you'll find on random workers' PDAs, and a lot of them are kind of samey. You know, they're like, oh man, something freaky happened down in level 7 of this research facility, and uh, I changed the locker cabinet code. And it's like, okay, so now I know the code to get this extra ammo and health packs, but that, you know, that's almost all there is to it. And when you read all the emails, there's some funny stuff, especially in Resurrection of Evil, because actually uh, most of them were almost kind of weird, generic-sounding emails in the original Doom 3, but in Resurrection of Evils, it's like a lot of these characters are emailing each other, uh, and you'll find, like, this guy emailed that guy uh, to invite him to a poker night and asked him to steal some sodas from the staff refrigerator, <laughs> and uh, this other guy is, like, uh, emailed tech support... And then tech support emails him back that they fixed his computer, but he should stop looking at pornography websites at work. And another, so those are always so much better, though. Yeah. Uh, so and but but because like they'll interact with each other between the emails, that's really really good. And I, I feel like resurrection of email. Uh, resurrection of email. Resurrection of email. <laughs> yeah. Uh, really, really, it it brought more life to that particular aspect of the game because in in the original Doom Three, it was just like, okay, which one of these has the locker code? That's all I fucking want. <laughs> but uh, and it, it was fun. I I still liked the mechanic, but it it they took it to the next level, and I think it made it a great mechanic instead of a good mechanic in Resurrection of Evil. And now we're talking about we're talking about video game stories and you still haven't played Undertale. Fuck. Which uh, I would talk about, but you know, I shouldn't. I, I almost bought the physical edition of that that came with like a giant music book uh, of like sheet music for all the Undertale music because I've listened to a fair amount of it. Uh, it's It's all really good music. And I was like, dude, if I got this book then I could play, like, a bunch of Undertale music on my bagpipes. I could, like, transpose it to bagpipe key. <laughs> be fucking hilarious. But then it was also, like, 100 bucks, and I didn't have that at the time. So yeah, so, that's yeah. fucking yeah. expensive. Yeah, and it was, like, a limited run. So it's like, you know, buy it today or don't. Or don't buy it ever. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, okay. And I, I, I did look on, again, to just see what scalpers were charging. And they're, like, for this collection it's like just fucking absurd so i'm like now not doing it and if we're also talking about video game stories i'd go and talk about lisa the painful where the entire game is so tightly focused on being making you suffer 
that you can lose party members permanently because RNG fucked you. Mm-hmm. Or in Russian roulette. And then the game has pain mode where when you go to a crow and talk to the crow to save, mm-hmm. the crow explodes. Yeah. So, what a uh, dick. You can only you can only save the once, and then there's <coughs> moments in the game where you have to choose between sacrificing a party member or just losing one of your arms permanently, and mm-hmm. be, it makes your combats that much harder. Mm-hmm. Reminds me of you only live once. <laughs> yeah, which uh, I think was a Newgrounds original. Yeah, it was one of those flash games. Yeah, where it's like it actually saves in your cookies uh, that you're dead, and so unless you delete your cookies, you, then you're like literally every time you log back into the new ground or load up the new grounds page, it'll you're, you'll just still be dead. <laughs> yeah, you fall in a pit, and then they arrest uh, yeah the owner of the castle. And for like obviously, like by resetting your browser or something, you 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 could. You could try again, but again, you you only get one life. And I thought that that was just hilarious, the, the way that they did it. So I just left my guy dead. I was just like, okay, you got me. And if you... if you I look, have been defeated. If you look around, there's actually a bunch of different ending cutscenes, depending on how far you get with it huh. and what kills you. Mm-hmm. Or if you manage to beat it, what happens after that. Huh. I've always kind of wondered, but I haven't gone back to it. I got a new computer now. It won't be saved in my cookies. Maybe I'll go try it again. Go tr- yeah, go try it again. <laughs> if, if that game, if you can even still find it. Right, yeah. I mean, I imagine it's probably still on Newgrounds. I, I don't know. Newgrounds or Congregate or something. I'll have to get, like, Adobe Flash Player again. Hmm. I don't know. That's true. Uh, so and back- I just, you know, upgraded my PC, so I'd have to re- redo yeah. Yeah, again. Because Tyler had some spare parts, so he was like, hey, you want a solid-state drive? And I was like, okay. Yeah. Who doesn't want a solid state drive? Who says no to that? Fucking commies. Yeah, I guess. Uh, But anyways, um, so yeah, so I think it can obviously be a good thing and a bad thing to focus on one aspect of the game. Uh, Another good example of this being a bad thing, I think, is Sonic 06. Because Sonic 06 had some of the best graphics in 2006. But not animation. That game looked fucking amazing. Or gameplay. Or anything else. So, I would say, if I had to give a final word on this topic, I would say, focused game design is good. Uh, Mm -hmm. But running out of resources is bad, or putting all your resources towards one thing while leaving others lackluster is bad. Mm. Right. Cool. So... Well, if you've put a final note in it, then I think that's good enough for me. Uh, ask Chris what the thing is, because this is Chris Brings a Thing. I bring a thing. You've seen this book before. I have. You let me borrow that once. Uh, it was it was pretty cool. I don't remember most of it, but I remember the escalation die. So this is, uh, for the listeners, this is 13th Age. It's basically a hack of D&D 3rd Edition and 4th Edition with the designers putting together the stuff they liked from it. Uh, and it has a lot of... It's, it's a very polished hack, and it also has a lot of interesting things about it, namely the designer's notes. 
where mm. the designers basically, when they disagree on something, they say, here's how I do it. And someone else says, oh, here's how I do it. Yeah. I, uh, I thought that was kind of interesting when I was reading through this. I didn't read through the whole thing when you let me borrow it, but I, I read through a... You know, I, I kind of looked over all the classes and stuff like that, and uh, really, the the big thing there was the escalation die, and I was just like, I am implementing that in all of my campaign because <laughs> it's cool. Uh, so the escalation die is actually a mechanic where uh, every round of combat you get a d6, uh, and you uh, well you get a d6 at the start of the combat, and then every round you move it up from one to the next number, two, three, and four. So basically a round counter. And for every count on the die, uh, every player character and... Uh, I forget if it originally gave the enemies this. It uh, does not. It just gives it to the player characters, right? It, it yeah. just... Basically, whatever the player... The turn count is, up to a maximum of six is uh, awarded as a bonus to attack and uh, skill rolls and not damage, I think. I think I I made it do damage later on a different die or something. After you got to six, I start a new die that does... Uh, so so I, I, I really liked that. Because um, it, it, basically the idea of it is that it kind of is like, okay, now combat is getting more and more intense, so you're focusing more on the combat and... Uh, kind of, you know, getting it up quicker. Uh, yeah. Uh, escalation die is obviously like the one of the big takeaways of this. I also mm. really like the um, background system from it, where it's you don't have skill points or anything like that. You have eight points that you can assign to backgrounds, and you can assign, I think, up to a maximum of five to any one background, oh. and then that's just what you get. And instead of that being, like, your skill system, you're like, my background is, like, street urchin, so obviously, mm. and that's, like, a five, so I roll, whenever I roll a skill related to this, obviously, mm -hmm. like, for pickpocketing or, like, hiding in alleyways or whatever, I'm actually mm -hmm. good at that. I like that a lot better than I like most skill systems. Yeah. Um... Most of like the more mechanically crunchy skill systems, it's like a good narrative way to kind of fudge it. Mm -hmm. There's actually a surprisingly largish pantheon in here, which I had forgotten, which seems kind of interesting. It's kind of neat. Yeah, it's the uh, through this in a long so time. what Sean's talking about is the icons, which are like a bunch of dudes in the world that right. are supposed to be the movers and shakers. Right, and yeah. they're not they're not gods in the way. They would be described in the player's handbook. They're like people you can. They're like actual dudes you can go out and fight right. if you want. Like the emperor, you could stab the emperor in the neck, and bad things could happen to him. Uh, to him, and also to his empire, probably. which you probably live in mm -hmm. if you're using the default setting. Right. Look, I could be a bard in this system. Yeah. Mind blowing. And sing barding songs. Bardic songs. Not barding songs. Barding songs would be weird. Oh, I put the barding on my horse and then I could ride him. <laughs> and then I rode him. And now we are in, in the, the desert. My horse has no name. Also, I 
not sure if I'm remembering this correctly, but I believe that weapon damage is not just based on the size of the weapon, but also based on your class. So if you're a fighter, you deal more weapon damage than, say, a wizard. That is a cool idea, too. Because uh, I've always thought it was kind of, you know, a weird kind of mechanic. Not not necessarily... Like, it, it still makes sense. Because, you know, you get hit with a, a sword of the same size. It's probably theoretically going to do enough damage, the same amount of damage, no matter who hits you with it. But, like... It could do. I feel like it could do significantly more damage in the hands of a fighter than it should in the hands of a rogue. Yeah, and just the differences in strength bonus, I feel like don't always carry through that level of effectiveness. Because I I made a a character once that was a rogue that took greatsword proficiency at their first level human feat. And so I would sneak up behind people, and then I would do, like, sneak attack damage plus my greatsword damage, and I would do, like, way the hell more damage than the barbarian would at any point. I would usually one-shot at least one enemy, and then if I could manage to be clever and get my sneak attack again, I would one-shot another enemy almost every time. Because at, at, at first level, 4d6 is a shitload of damage. I feel like uh, I've built some really broken builds that were rogue barbarian type builds, mm -hmm. where they had sneak attacks with great swords that also did leap attacks. Mm -hmm. This is dumb. You jump on top of someone from ten, from more than ten feet away, and then stab them in the back, and they die instantly because you're both a rogue and a barbarian. Yeah, stuff like that. Uh, but not to get up. Too off topic. Yeah, 13th Age is kind of filled with all sorts of little innovations like that. Little mm. mechanical, uh, like, yeah, almost neat tricks. I kind of remember that a little bit, because when I was looking through it, I was like, oh, this is mostly like 3.5 or, you know, similar to uh, whichever core version of D&D &D it was, depending on which particular aspect of the game. But, you know, there's a lot of little differences in there that like kind of makes it its own thing yeah. and I feel like uh, if nothing else it's very interesting for that that it's like it's got a lot of unique ticks yeah like uh, how they handle fire resistance mm -hmm. so I like 13th age I'm not sure that I would ever run it mostly because, but I think it's the sort of thing you can pick up and just pilfer a bunch of stuff out for another system. Mm -hmm. So what do you rate that on a scale of 3 to 17? I think I'm rating, I would rate it a 14, and by no means is my rating an objective one. And I rated 14 mostly because I would... I like a lot of the stuff in it. I don't think I'd ever run it myself. I'd take stuff out of the... But I'd definitely take a lot of stuff out of the book and use it somewhere else. Uh -huh. It's full of neat ideas, even if I might not use the system myself. Right. Cool. Yeah. So that's 13th Age. And with that, I think that's Drink to the Past. Yeah. We are now drunk... And the podcast is in the past. Yep. Is that how that works?
I mean, kind of like just kind of. Technically, right now as we're recording this, it's in the future for everybody else because I haven't uploaded it yet. But it's in the past for us, except for the you know the end part where we bullshit like we talked about at the start part. Yeah, like we talked about it at the start. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So speaking of the whole random bullshit things where we get distracted because we start running a game and then we decide that we want to run something totally different. Because, We're great at that. Yeah. I had two of those happen to me this week. Oh, yeah? Which is, one would be post-apocalyptic wasteland that was ruined by people developing superpowers from, like, a super drug. Hmm. Where part of the game is just fighting off warlords and then finding, like, the super drug that also mutates you eventually if you have too much of it. <coughs> there was a kind of an aspect of that in... If you remember when you got into pirates, like in the later part of the campaign, once we got out of the Great Strait, yeah, once you got out of the Great Strait, like there was a lot of pirate captains that would uh, use drugs to modify the biology of themselves, and so like they would take these drugs and they'd gain like crazy ass superpowers. But if they went into withdrawal, they would have terrible ass effects, uh, and Eventually, my intention was to give the players these drugs or access to them so that they could, you know, take them or not at their, you know, discretion. Straight into the eyeballs. I'd just give them to my apprentices. Right. <laughs> Good old Earl. Fucking Earl. <laughs> yeah. But uh, then I think that was the version of the campaign where we got too tied up in Devin's micromanaging all the time. Damn it, Devin. But it's okay, probably. Devin's probably Devin. listening to this. Yeah, probably. He picked, like, this one podcast to listen to. He's like, Drink to the Past, that sounds good. I wonder, hey, Chris and Sean, I know them. And now we're all talking shit about him. Damn it, Devin. We are talking shit about you. Right. It's not even behind your back, because you're listening to this. Yeah, Devin. You should email Devin this podcast or, or something. Yeah. I haven't talked to him in a long-ass time. I'll probably be talking to him tomorrow. Cool. Tell him I say hi. Okay. And then tell him I say, what was that? I can't hear you. I was playing the bagpipes. I'll t make sure to tell him that, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he'll know what I mean. Because, I mean, what was that? I can't hear you. I was playing the bagpipes. But Willie, no. Willie? Who's Willie? one eye. One-Eyed Willy. Steamboat Willy? Mm. Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory? Willy's Wonka and his Chocolates Factory. That's what you think. Yeah, I guess it is. Would you lick the chocolate off his Wonka? No. Would you let him lick chocolate off your Wonka? I mean, still probably not. What if he was, like, a blue-haired anime boy? I don't want any blue-haired anime boys touching my Wonka. Good, I'll keep them all. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm glad we came to this agreement. <laughs> I'll drink to that. But the other one was, like, a psychic, uh, psionics, <sighs> futuristic campaign. That'd be cool. game system. Yeah. Uh... I'm not done with my beer yet, so we can't 
finish, right? Because I have a I have a drop of beer left. I'm gonna like finish this drop of beer. Yeah. Mm-mm. That was a good beer. And now it's. I think it was originally like a psychic mecha game. Huh. Where you put psychic people in mechas, and then they were the mechas enhanced their psychic powers so they could use them outside of the mecha. So it was Final Fantasy VI. Except for that only happens in like the first five minutes. 15, yeah, five where, minutes. Where you're just like, oh yeah, these badass mechs, and they've got missiles, and they can cast extra spells, and now it's broken, and I never get another one. Nope. <laughs> it's like, come on. Why did they never use any more of those? I don't know. It's like, Terra was so busted at like level one being able to just fucking nuke people with missiles. Like, oh yeah, we have the two characters that can use magic. Right. And uh, then eventually unlock magic for other people. They got to learn yeah. it the old-fashioned way. I started playing Final Fantasy VI again on my Super Nintendo Classic, and then I forgot to get back to it eventually. So I haven't got back to that eventually. I also played partway through Link to the Past. I, I, I played partway through a lot of things in that thing, and not all of them. Oh, Kirby Superstar was the other one of the other things that came to uh, Super Nintendo Online, which is pretty cool because that's like the best Kirby game ever, except for maybe Kirby and the Amazing Mirror. How tall is Kirby? Eight inches. I know that from a Super Smash Brothers trophy. Almost that is just big enough to suck someone's dick. I mean, he'd really suck it. And then he'd absorb it. And and gain its power? And gain its power. I'm just imagining him with a dick hat. Hi. The <laughs> <laughs> fuck is wrong with you? He's uh, a child. He's only 200 years old. That's pretty old. Like, I'm not 200 years old. Yet? I'm, I'm less than that. What are you, 192? Uh, uh, I'm younger than that. 191? No. Warmer? Like, a little warmer, (laughs) sure. (laughs) Technically. Okay. Well. Uh, I'm actually negative 32. Wow. I saw this meme online the other day that was like, how old were you when Star Wars came out in in 1977? And I was like, negative 14. And all the people that were like, Liking this meme, we're like, fuck, I'm old. <laughs> I'm like, I have that feeling sometimes, because, like, every now and then I just have this, like, I... Like, that. I don't know if epiphany is the right word, but I have a sudden realization every now and then that I'm like, oh, wow, every single kid on my school bus is younger than Pokemon. Holy shit. <laughs> Although, I feel like that can only intensify as you get older. Right, yeah. It's like eventually... The next thing I know, it'll be like, oh, every, you know, kid on my bus is younger than, you know, this stupid-ass Justin Bieber song that I hated in 2015 or whatever. Like, a lot of the kids alive today are not used to living in a world without smartphones. Right, yeah. And smartphones were like a new thing a decade ago. Yeah. Like, brand new. Like It's it was, weird. Like, my kids are totally used to, like, all of it. It's funny when I'm talking to, like, older people about my kids, and especially around the holidays, because they're like, oh, were they asking you for all the toys from the commercials? And I'm like, we don't watch commercials. All we do is stream. (laughs) 
Life like, has changed. Like, yeah, and even when we had cable, like, we DVR'd most stuff. And so, like, literally my kids would come up to me when it came to a commercial. They'd hand me the remote and say, Daddy, will you skip those silly commercials? <laughs> and I'd be like, yep. These kids You're today not watching will never know the joy or terror of watching early morning adult swim where a, five, where a foul-mouthed five-year-old uh, started calling her robot maid a dumbass. And then a random Japanese person started talking about butter sautéed mushrooms while a video of real life played over in the background. Huh. Did you ever watch that show? Can't say that I probably did. None of that sounds quite familiar. What was it? Super Milk Jam is on at like 5 in the morning on Adult Swim. I think maybe I watched it like once. I'd watch it before going to middle school. Hmm. That explains a lot. (laughs) Not really watch it, kind of lay in bed and just go, the hell? (laughs) Right. I think that's probably why they did that. Silly ass Adult Swim. Remember when Adult Swim was every night? It's not every night anymore? No, it's just Saturday. That's fucking lame. Right. And it's, like, mostly anime, too. It's, like, all the anime that they can't show in Toonami. Because it's, like... So it's only anime And also, Toonami is only in the Saturday as well, I think. That also sucks. Yeah. So it's only anime and Rick and Morty. That's it. Yeah. And maybe they still do family... Uh, Although, again, this is, like... Also, I haven't had cable in, like, a year... So I'm not actually 100% sure anymore. But basically, the only things I watched on Adult Swim anymore, I would DVR uh, One Piece every week. And uh, uh, they played Helsing Ultimate, which was interesting because, like, they had to bleep a lot even to get it on Cartoon Network, (laughs) even on Adult Swim. Huh. Because Helsing Ultimate, like, in, in a couple of cases, has, like, just, like, too many F-bombs. But it's... I'm like, it's cable. Aren't they supposed to not be restricted by that? I think so, but, you know, it's also a generally children's network cable? Yeah. I don't know. But at the same time, if you're showing Helsing Ultimate, like, I feel like most of the gore was there, so, like, is it really gonna upset a parent if you say fuck and not upset them yeah. when you, like, dismember and disembowel people I mean, on screen. It? Like, you can literally go online and just <clears throat> type in, uh, type in most things and just, like, have videos of dudes masturbating on each other come up. Right. That might be a virus. Maybe. I might have put it there. Son of a bitch. Sorry. Not sorry. How dare you. Well, at least it's not as awkward as that time your dad found it. <laughs>